Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll get an update on the COVID-19 pandemic as cases and hospitalizations are again rising across the country. We could be on the verge of a new surge. We'll discuss the outlook with Dr. Jody Guest, an epidemiologist and professor at the Rollins School of Public Health and School of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta. She also serves as an advisor to the Centers for uh, Disease Control and has been a frequent and very valued guest on Facing the Future. Concord Coalition Communications Director Av Harris and National Field Director Phil Smith join the conversation. And then later we'll have uh, some thoughts from Tori Gorman, Concord's Policy Director. Dr. Guest, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry that I am still relevant to all of you. <laughs> well, we like having you back anyway, uh, but uh, uh, I'll resist the temptation to say we're sorry, too, because we like, uh, like having you on. And, you know, uh, we're we're very aware just to remind people again why we do these COVID segments is that the budget and the economy have been very much tied to the to the course of the pandemic. And so. We look at uh, healthcare indicators now as budgetary and economic indicators. And so when we see, as we've been seeing, uh, reports of rising caseloads and, uh, and hospitalizations, uh, that gets our attention uh, even as, as budget watchers, uh, e- even if many people seem to be ready to just move on uh, from where we are. And just before we get started, I. I have to I have to say the CDC certainly doesn't seem to be ready to move on because just in the past week, there have been some reports coming from CDC showing that, you know, almost half the population lives in a community with uh, a medium or high uh, community spread of of covid. And they've increased the um, uh, I guess made stronger the recommendation for for boosters, particularly for immunocompromised people in uh, over 12 and, and anybody over 50. Uh, you know, uh, recommending that they should get a booster. So before we get into some of the specifics, uh, sort of a general opening question, what's, uh, you know, are we on the, are we experiencing a new surge? We are. You know, New York is actually having their fifth surge and the entire United States is in a surge. It is not easy to see that if you're following the media, because we're not talking about it at the level that we once were. There are a lot of other things that are going on, of course, to compete, but we are absolutely seeing a surge. What, we're, what we have right now is, um, is uh, you know, increasing rates every single day in the United States. And we know we're underestimating more now than we ever were before because more people are using antigens at home to test than we've ever seen before. So 
even our our 46% increase rate in the last two weeks is probably a very, very large underestimate of how much COVID is out there. Yeah, well, um, you know, one of the things CDC suggested was that communities and individuals should begin thinking again about mitigation efforts like uh, masking and and vaccine. Is that something that uh, communities should begin doing? Absolutely. You know, there is zero harm in putting on a mask. And so when you do that, you are protecting yourself and you're protecting those around you as well. If you're in an area that is closed and particularly if you're in an area where you don't know the vaccination status of everyone. However, that last statement I just made probably is even more important to move past now with Omicron than it was with Delta. We are seeing more and more people get um, available to get Omicron more than one time. And we're seeing that more than we've ever seen with any other variant of COVID-19. So other people's vaccine status is super helpful, but not as helpful as it was in previous surges of COVID-19. Um, I'm going to pass to uh, Av and, and Phil in a moment, but uh, one one more uh, opening question here. Um, uh, and, and just as an observation, I was at a college graduation a couple of weeks ago in a, a location with a relatively high community spread. Um, most of those places are in the Northeast. And uh, uh, I think my my sister, who's a hospital pharmacist, and I were about the only ones wearing a mask. <laughs> very, very few. I was surprised, actually. Uh, I felt like I was wearing a sign that said, I'm not from here <laughs> because I was wearing my mask. Um, the, the news on boosters is interesting. Uh, um, I know that uh, some people have been playing sort of a booster waiting game. I, I got my second booster as soon as they were uh, available. But um, I know other people that have been saying, well, there's going to be a surge in, in the fall and there might be one in the winter and there'll be stronger boosters. Should people go ahead and get their fourth booster now or wait to, to, to see if uh, a stronger, more targeted booster comes out? Yeah, so if you're fully vaccinated and you've already had one booster and it's been at least five months and you're over the age of 60, to me, you should absolutely get a booster right now. The data between for those who are 50 to 60 who don't have an underlying condition is less persuasive. I am it, There is really no harm in getting it, but you do need to recognize you're probably going to need another one in the fall. And um, and. A month ago, I might have been more interested in in saying you can probably wait, but I think that need to wait has stopped. We see cases going up so much that at this point in time, it would be a useful thing to get a booster. Recognizing the more primed your immune system is, the less likely you are to have a hard time if you get COVID-19. And that's ultimately, we have to consistently remember, ultimately, that's what these vaccines are for, to make sure we don't have people die or really have severe disease with COVID-19, which is still possible to happen with this variant. 
Uh, if you want to jump in, I should mention that you've been in this in the thick of the things since the beginning. So, Dr. Guest, I, I just want to say at the outset, thank you very much on behalf of all of us for all of the work you're doing just to, to, to try to keep people uh, healthy and safe. I think a lot of public health officials have just taken a beating in the last couple of years, you know, and um, and it's just a, it's a difficult field to be in at this time. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that and, and just appreciate your, your efforts again. Um, and so I'm curious what your thoughts are on some of these numbers, because I've been tracking them every day. And usually, as, as the epidemiologists taught me, that with an infectious disease like this or a respiratory virus, you're going to see cases climb up. You're going to see hospitalizations then uh, climb up after your cases go up. And then usually lagging behind that, you know, two to three weeks lagging behind that, you're going to see your death numbers go up. And what's curious to me about this latest surge is that cases are definitely up. Hospitalizations are definitely up, but the death numbers have remained low. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what to what you attribute that. Is it that there's been so many people that be infected that in that in combination with a lot of people getting their vaccines and boosters, there's a lot of natural immunity out there. Um, are the antiviral treatments better so that if people get hospitalized, we have more tools now to treat them with. So it's less likely to result in a death. What, what do you make of these numbers? Yeah, I think the answer is all of that. Um, you know, so that is a great news that we are seeing in these numbers. It is unfortunate that we're seeing another surge. It's unfortunate that we're, you know, still in this cycle, but we are not back in 2020. And that's, that's the really important thing to remember. Things are different. We know more, we can do more, we are further along. And the combination of 66.5% of the United States being fully vaccinated and then just, you know, 46.5% of the U.S. is vaccinated and has had one booster, they are in a much better position than we were pre-vaccination. Additionally, we had such a large number of people who got COVID between the Delta surge and the Omicron surge, the first Omicron surge, that we have a lot of natural infection um, protection out there right now as well. And I think that, the, that this new surge is coming so very quickly after the Omicron surge that we still have people with a lot of natural antibodies out there that are keeping them from getting really sick. It's also possible that this particular variant is just slightly different enough that the way people are sick with it is different and is keeping them out of ICU. We are not seeing the need for the respiratory support and the need to be in ICU with, with Omicron and this variant of Omicron, the way we saw with Delta and the original ancestral strain and even beta. So that is good news. It is, however, exceptionally transmissible. So we do need to remember that. And vaccines are your number one way to protect yourself from getting severely sick from this. So if I can just follow up on that, mm -hmm. um, the antiviral drugs that are yeah. available now that were not yeah. available earlier, how has that changed the game? And can you describe like what do we have now that we didn't have as a tool back then. So if you're not vaccinated, and I, and I agree with you, number one tool to protect yourself and your, your loved ones is get the vaccine and get your boosters. But for those who haven't, for whatever reason, um, what tools are there available now to, to, to fight the virus once you're already infected that maybe we didn't have before? 
Sure. So we've had a couple of advances with antivirals. We've had monoclonal antibodies, and now we have two other antivirals, uh, molnupiravir and Paxovid. Um, they, the monoclonal antibodies are not working super well with Omicron. So that is unfortunate. That was the first thing that we had in a repertoire for actual treatment that seemed to be very effective. But again, this variant it does not does not seem to care about them. The antivirals, though, um, are doing well, and um, and they are they are, are something that we can use for people who've been vaccinated or not vaccinated. So mm. either the really important thing about them, though, is you have to get them within the first five days. And so if you delay being tested. So if you have an onset of symptoms and you don't get tested for a while, you may find yourself in a position to not have them as an available option for you to make sure your COVID is not as severe as it might have been otherwise. And so this, this brings up the need to consistently test. So if you have symptoms of any variety, you should be testing. And right now you can get eight additional tests for every address in the United States on um, a government website. And so you should go and order those. It was previously four. This particular time, it's eight tests per household. And so please, everyone, go and order those tests. Um, additionally, if you don't have any symptoms, but you know you've been around a large gathering or you know you've been around someone who's had COVID, you also want to be testing. We cannot forget how important testing is at this time. I've had two kids graduate in this month. I have been around bigger groups. Luckily, graduations were both outside, but I've been about around bigger groups than I normally am, unmasked, but outdoors. So I tested before I went. I tested when I got home. I tested three days after, five days after, just to make sure that I did not pick up COVID. Um, I was not ever symptomatic, but I couldn't guarantee because there's a lot of COVID out there that I would have had symptoms. And so I wanted to make sure. About five minutes left in our opening uh, segment on facing the future. Phil, you want to jump in? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dr. Guest. Since you were last on our show, uh, unfortunately, I came down with COVID <laughs> about a month ago. And it gave me you know, an interesting uh, experience to talk about, I think, a little bit. First of all, uh, I was with I was with uh, I almost was with Av in Connecticut. Uh, but as the symptoms came on, I thought at first that I had food poisoning because mine started as a stomach thing. Av was about to leave for Israel. So I said, Av, I'm not going to expose you to this. Uh, and but but uh, but I did. Uh, since I thought I had food poisoning, I did go ahead and fly home from Connecticut. Uh, and on that flight, ha it just happened to be the day that the Supreme Court, uh, or I'm sorry, not the Supreme Court, a federal judge made the ruling that, about the mask mandate. So the captain came on to the intercom mid-flight and said, I've just talked with company headquarters. You may now remove your mask and live in total freedom. And the whole plane in the back, like, well, not the whole plane. There were some people that were clapping and ripped their masks off and so forth, but I couldn't help. I had this haunting feeling. What if this isn't food poisoning that I have? And these people are ripping their masks off right now. And, you know, there, so there were a few of us that kept our masks on and we kind of looked at each other and like, uh oh. but it kind of it kind of makes me think, you know, we have to make our own rules about masks right now because these mandates are no longer there. So where do you wear a mask where you don't wear a mask? But when I came home, I tested immediately. And unfortunately, it wasn't just food poisoning. It turned out to be COVID. So I immediately you know, did all the right things uh, that I was told to do. 
Uh, and uh, the local health department here knew that I had COVID uh, because I had agreed to at the CVS pharmacy here to allow my test results to be shared. Mm-hmm. And the local health department called me up and I had this incredible conversation with this healthcare worker who was federally funded, by the way, through one of these programs, who just walked me through an entire timeline, told me what to expect, um, you know, which day I should, how, which days I should remain isolated, which days I should re- wear the mask and in which way I which when I could return to normal. Uh, but you could tell the conversation was, I mean, I thanked her profusely and she thanked me because she'd had some difficult customers before me. And it got me thinking about health, our healthcare workers and the morale of the healthcare workers. She told me some things where she'd just been mistreated on the phone. So I guess my question is, how is morale with you guys these days? We went from singing about you and congratulating you and cheering you to, to now where healthcare workers have to put up with a lot of junk. So how are you guys doing? So, um, you know, I don't work in a hospital and, um, you know, and that's an entire group that is, that is super overworked, super stressed. Um, you know, capacity is a consistent concern of us in hospitals, public health workers, you know, we're tired. Um, there's no way around the fact that we are tired and we wish we were not still in this situation. And, we did get a lot of attention for a while. It wasn't necessarily positive attention, but it was attention. And right now we're in the middle of another surge in the United States and you would not know it. And that is sad. It's frustrating. It, you know, um, I've been asked over and over again, should we serve, should we survey people in this group to see if they want to wear masks or not? You know, this is, this is a community sport to end this pandemic. I want to be really clear about that, but this is not about um, everyone getting to dis. We should not be in the position where everyone gets to decide how they want to function in this pandemic. There are some baseline things that we could all be doing with some um, strong leadership that would help us get out of this faster. So it's a, both a, a um, community sport as well as we need to be listening to some leaders and those leaders are not um, getting a lot of airtime right now. But we persist. We persist. (laughs) Got about a minute or two. Quick, quick question and quick answer. So uh, just piggybacking off of that, Dr. Guest, um, there was talk not too long ago that, we were going to get to the point or we were transitioning to the point. And this was, by the way, this was echoed by some public health leaders that we were going to transition to COVID being endemic. It's just one of several respiratory viruses that are out there that we have to be careful of, you know, like influenza every year. Um, and that this wearing a mask would eventually become an individual decision, mm-hmm. kind of like how after SARS in Asia, you look at Korea or Singapore, there are people who just wear masks wherever they go. So, what point are we at? Are we at that point, really? Or are we not at that point yet? Uh, I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Sure. You know, so first of all, endemic levels of disease means it's a it's a level of disease that we anticipate, we expect, and we find um, workable. I, I have written about this. I've talked about this. I am unwilling to accept this as our endemic level. We will get to one. Um, we've just passed a million deaths from COVID-19 in the United States. We, we cannot save those lives we've already lost, but we can save a lot of lives in the next week, in the next two weeks, in the next several months. And I'm not willing to accept this as our endemic level, but we will get to it 
And we will get to a place where individual decisions about masking is exactly what we should be doing. Um, everyone can determine their own level of risk that is acceptable to them. I just don't feel like we're there yet. But we're- we'll have to leave it there for our first segment on that note. Uh, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and Phil Smith and I are talking with Dr. Jody Guest, epidemiologist and professor at Emory University. We're discussing the COVID-19 pandemic, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with uh, Dr. Jody Guest, epidemiologist and professor at Emory University in Atlanta. Av Harris, uh, Concord's Communications Director, and Phil Smith, Field Director for the Concord Coalition, are joining me. We're talking about the latest numbers on uh, COVID. And just before the break, uh, Jody, we were discussing whether the uh, pandemic was becoming endemic. And uh, you were saying you, you weren't uh, prepared to, to declare that. Let's just talk a little bit about what, what that means. I mean, it's just a little bit more about moving to an endemic status. And it, that doesn't mean harmless. <laughs> no, no. Endemic does not mean mild. It doesn't mean harmless. You can have endemic levels of really aggressive diseases, but it does mean it's predictable. And it might be seasonal. It might be in particular areas where you see it and other areas where you don't, um, or in certain populations versus others. You know, this is something that is that kind of COVID-19 kind of rolls through the United States in a fairly predictable pattern at this point in time, um, but does not have a great seasonality to it yet, although we keep anticipating that it will. Um, But endemic levels mean this is what we can anticipate every year. This is what we're going to see. I am unwilling to accept more than 300 deaths a day from something that is vaccine preventable the deaths are vaccine preventable as as endemic. And so to me, I think of that word very much as predictable, um, acceptable. We should count on it. I don't think we should count on 300 deaths a day from this and say, all right, we're here. There's nothing really else for us to do about it. I, I just I just cannot accept that. Um. So, Dr. Guest, uh, I want to share with you just a little story and, and a picture from my recent travels. I was uh, in Israel for a couple of weeks uh, for um, my cousin's wedding, and I will describe to you what I experienced in arriving in Israel. First of all, you have to fill out a fairly extensive um, public health form before you even get there. You have to uh, let you let the government know, the public, the health ministry know what your vaccination status is. You have to upload that information. Um, and so that you, it's not just your word. They're seeing proof of your CDC vaccination card. And everybody, and I'm talking everybody, uh, old folks, young folks, somewhere in between, little children, um, everybody gets tested when they arrive at the airport. And you can actually set this up to prepay for that testing so that it goes smoother once you get there. They have an extensive testing infrastructure set up at that airport. It's like they 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 put out, it almost looks like an army field hospital. It's a large operation and everybody goes through and it's part of the arrival process. This is a PCR testing facility, by the way. And what you're supposed to do is remain in isolation until you get your results back. And if your results are negative, then you can get out of isolation. The turnaround time on that PCR testing is eight hours. 
Wow. On average. Okay. And, and I got my results back within six hours. It was negative and we could go about our business. And it just struck me as why can't we have that in the United States? We have a minimum turnaround time for a PCR test of 24 hours. Sometimes it's now 48 hours. At least it's not 10 days as it was back in the early part of the pandemic. But it strikes me as um, there is a country, again, much smaller than the United States, but they've made a public investment and they've made a decision to invest in that testing infrastructure um, so that, and to, to turn around those results quickly. And I was struck by that. And, and then coming back, I actually got another PCR test. You could pay an expedited fee and have your results within four hours, which is what we did. So, and it just struck me as, well, why couldn't we have that in the United States? What, what, what's your thoughts on that? Well, we could. If there was will, we could. Um, you know, this is a, um, it's going to be not my area of expertise, it's all of yours, but, you know, this is a financial investment, but it's also the will to do it and the will to follow leadership that says, this is what we're doing. And, um, and I think one of the things we've learned in this pandemic is we're really hesitant as a country to make broad statements like we are all going to go do this and we're all going to all follow this. And we don't seem to be willing to do that very much with this pandemic. Um, and from a public health perspective, that is unfortunate. It is um, discouraging, but it's it's kind of the way our country has been set up. And it's certainly the way we've been um, engaged with this pandemic. There's some really interesting data about trust in government and that being a predictor of dying in this pandemic. And <laughs> we um, have a preponderance of deaths if you compare us in the United States to other higher income, large countries. You know, we are very large. So it is sometimes you, you would almost think we need to do this 50 different ways and 50 different times and treat each state like a country. Um, and we would be then more comparable. But if you looked at the top 10 other countries in the world that are high, um, high income and large, their death rates are superiorly different than ours. And on a marker of trust in leadership, they are much higher than we are. And it's hard to not see those two things as correlated. Especially given Phil's story. <laughs> <laughs> about his his interaction with the your local public health department, you right. know, and how positive that was. Um, you know, I, I th th that's a very very striking comparison. You know, uh, Doctor Guest, when we at the Concord Coalition look out towards the future, we're always trying to figure out ways to curb long term healthcare costs, right? Because that's the big one. If we can't figure out over the long haul how to get a hold of increased healthcare costs, it actually is bigger than any of the other uh, growth areas that we look at oftentimes. And uh, so I look back, what can I do for that personally? Obviously, I can get vaccinated. If I'm vaccinated, I'm going to be healthier. I'm not going to cost society as much. I'm not going to cost myself as much. Uh, and I knew my next uh, vaccination that I want to get is for shingles, because when I was a kid, I had chicken pox. So I want to make sure I don't get shingles. I've known a few people who have, and it's pretty awful. So I was thinking about, you know, chicken pox. And then I'll open up the paper and I hear about monkey pox. It's like, oh, no, now we have yet a whole other thing to worry about. Could you tell us a little bit about monkeypox, which has been in the news lately? 
Yeah. So who knew we could keep talking about, you know, infectious diseases that either we've never had before or are coming back. You know, so monkeypox is not something we see in the United States. Our endemic level of this, that what we expect to see in the United States is frankly nothing. Um, and so we've got um, a couple states that are now having cases of monkeypox. We will probably see more states have this. This is not going to be the pandemic that we see with COVID-19. Um, I really do not believe we're going to see that. This is a different sort of virus. This is um, the respiratory nature and the transmissibility of this is different than COVID-19. Um, but we do have two different strains that are out there. There's one from Congo and there's one from West Africa, which is where you anticipate seeing this more often. This is a virus that belongs in the smallpox family. I think my biggest concern right now, um, and, and let me back up for a second, all the, all the cases that we've seen are linked together. So there is a definite ability to tie people together that have this. My, our biggest concern should be those people under a certain age who've not had a smallpox vaccination. Those of us above a certain age probably had it, and, um, and there's probably a lot of protection from that. And so um, we are probably going to need to consider what that looks like. Um, I think we're a little too early to be able to talk more about that, but that is a group that I would be most concerned about. So it may be those under the age of 40 maybe our biggest risk group for monkeypox. Not to make light of it, but I guess that lets all of us out. We're <laughs> <laughs> um, at certain ages. <laughs> uh, speaking of, um, you know, the rest of the world and uh, how, how is it, uh, how, how is the rest of the world doing with COVID? Because of course this is an integrated uh, problem. It's all, it's all over the world. And so what happens elsewhere eventually comes around to the United States and I'm switching back to COVID here for monkeypox, but, uh, but, but uh, how, how are things, uh, how, how is the pandemic faring uh, in, in Europe and Africa, Asia? Give us a quick tour of the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the Europe traditionally um, through COVID has kind of preceded the United States for most things. Um, and so we saw the newest variants kind of roll through the UK in particular before we saw it in the United States. That has stayed true. They had a little bit more spacing between their um, latest surges. And so their, um, their second surge with Omicron was more spread out from their first one. So they probably had slightly less natural immunity than we did maybe a little bit of a positive for us and the really fast nature that we saw the second variant come through. Um, I think as we, as we look at COVID-19 across the entire world, our biggest concern should be the inequities in vaccination. We have entire countries that have less than 10% of the, the people who've had access to a vaccination where, you know, I spend all my time super concerned about the fact that we don't have and, you know, there, there are 34% of the people in the United States who have not been fully vaccinated yet. Putting that into large perspective, there are entire countries that don't have access to vaccinations or parts of a country that don't have any access to vaccinations. And none of us are going to be safe until we have equitable access to it across the world. We are too mobile of a society across the world for it not to matter. We should all care 
about the vaccination status in the least vaccinated country in the world. It matters to all of us. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, uh, Concord Coalition Communications Director, uh, Av Harris, and Field Director Phil Smith and I are talking with Dr. Jody Guest, epidemiologist and professor at Emory University. We're discussing the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll be right back after these short messages when I'll be joined by Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Dr. Jody Guest, epidemiologist and professor at Emory University, about the COVID-19 pandemic, which just doesn't seem to go away. Uh, and in this segment, I'm joined by uh, communications director Av Harris and policy director Tori Gorman. Av, just before the break, you were uh, about to ask a question that I cut off. <laughs> I think it's an important question that a lot of uh, listeners have an interest in. So go ahead. Thank you very much. Um, so, Dr. Guest, uh, I'm the parent of a child who's less than five years old. And what has been uh, so frustrating for, for those of us um, is the inability to vaccinate um, our young children. Because I think, as you said, this offers the highest uh, degree of, of protection. And she's been vaccinated for a lot of other uh, infectious diseases. When we spoke last, uh, you were optimistic that by this spring, we could have uh, the, the first shot available for the children from zero to five. Here we are in the spring, it's still not available. Um, what's your sense on when we might be able to get vaccines for our youngest children? Yeah, so I missed that prediction, um, but I do actually have some formal dates at this point in time. So um, Pfizer and the FDA and, and Moderna have actually all re released information that the FDA is going to review the data for zero to five-year-olds for the vaccines on June 15th. And that will follow the traditional trajectory of the FDA will review it. They will make a recommendation. The um, CDC Advisory Council on vaccinations will then review it. And then the CDC director will make a formal decision and recommendation. But the data looks really good. That's part of the delay was it was being um, examined as a two do dose series and the data was not sufficient that two doses was the right way to approach vaccinating these young kids because the dose that's being used is so much smaller than, it, than some of the older, for all the rest of us who are over the age of five. And so they went to a third dose and that's going to be the standard dosing for those zero to five years of age. And that's not surprising. A lot of vaccines like this are a three dose series and and now I think with boosters, we've seen that that's needed for all of us, but we're going to go ahead and start with that for those zero to five-year-olds. So June 15th, it, I didn't make it by spring, uh, my prediction. It's still spring. Summer, <laughs> coming up, coming up very quickly. So it's just before a quick, the summer solstice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a very quick follow-up on that. So with a three-dose uh, series for childhood vaccinations, would that be something like over the course of a year or two that you would get your three doses? No. And I don't have the specifics on the dosing schedule, but I think it's going to follow very much like what we've seen in the two dose series, which for Pfizer is 21 days apart for Moderna is 28 days, a little bit of wiggle room on the longer side. And so you're going to see three pretty quickly in a row for the Pfizer dosing. 
Well, let's hope that your prediction is correct. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, the data looks phenomenal with 80% protective for um, against Omicron, which is um, that's also important. It's now been able to be evaluated with our most recent variant. Tori. Yeah. So now that we're talking about vaccines specifically, I have a, a, a pretty broad but interesting, I think, interesting question on vaccines. Why is it that some vaccines are sort of one and done? You know, I think of things like MMR, the chickenpox vaccine, varicella, et cetera. And then there are some vaccines like the flu vaccine, the coronavirus vaccine that are not one and done. Can you explain why there's less durability in the COVID vaccines? It's really about the virus and how it mutates. This is a wily virus that we put pressure on it in one direction and it moves in another direction. Um, And so when we see that from viruses that they're not stable, they are able to mutate and they can mutate very quickly. That means the vaccinations may not be global enough to be able to handle all those mutations. They may have been more finely tuned to the original strain of the virus. And so mRNA technology is phenomenal in its ability to be reprogrammed and that can actually be tested and and, um, going into distribution within six to eight weeks. So very, very quickly, we have not had to do that yet with this vaccine, but we are probably moving in that direction of needing to fine tune it. We see that every year with the flu vaccine, where we see um, the need to have lots of different variant strains included in the vaccination. But then there are some that like smallpox and polio, they're very highly contagious viruses, but we almost eradicated them through vaccination. And the result of doing that meant it didn't mutate. So we didn't ever have to see those vaccinations again because we got rid of it with the first Mm -hmm. series. Mm -hmm. So we just haven't been that lucky with this particular virus. We are now two plus years uh, into our experience with COVID. Um, COVID obviously exposed some weaknesses in the U.S. healthcare system, healthcare policy. Um, And I'm wondering if now that we're two years into this, you know, we've obviously spotted, you know, problem here, problem here. Have you seen any evidence that we're actually addressing some of those weaknesses and and trying to sort of, you know, they say a a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. You know, are we addressing some of those weakest links or are we still ignoring those problems? Yes and no. Um, You know, I think that we are at, at now talking about some things that we haven't been talking about multi-generational inequities and racism that have put people at increased risk for COVID-19, I think we're talking about more than we used to. And and that's important. That's got to be the first step towards making changes. But those are going to need to be some very systemic, um, large changes in our system. I think we now recognize that disbanding the public health preparedness Um, group in the United States that's looking for outbreaks and predicting them before they happen was a very bad decision. And we are living with that. And so I don't think we'll see that happen again. I also think we can be very clear that our public health infrastructure was woefully underfunded, woefully understaffed, and we cannot let that happen. You know, in, in healthcare, you talk about prevention being um, a way to save money. If you do more things early, you will spend less money later and people will be healthier and more productive in society. 
we can even take a step further than that and say public health is even a precursor to individual preventive medicine. And so that public health infrastructure is critical to keep us all safe and keep us all healthy and keep us all able to be employed and part of the economy in the United States to take it back to money. And, and I really think we'll see a better investment in that. I think we also know that our pipeline for nursing staff and other sorts of healthcare staff is inadequate, and we have got to do something about that. And I think that there are some um, schools of nursing and schools of medicine that are making some big um, uh, investments in how to change that. But it's going to take some creativity because we saw a lot of health professionals retire during this pandemic because it was overwhelming to work during it. We talk about national healthcare system versus a public healthcare system. National, can you differentiate a little bit between? Because I think people sometimes when when people when you hear people like you talking about we need to invest more in public health public health system, they think, oh my gosh, they're trying to nationalize you know the U.S. healthcare system and take away my private health insurance. That's not what we're talking about here, correct? No, that's not it at all. Public health infrastructure has nothing to do with a person's individual insurance or their opportunity to get it, or the way they're going to be treated. It's really about what do we need to be, what data do we need to be collecting to make sure we're seeing early warning signs of things that might go wrong? So for COVID, we really need to invest in our uh, wastewater infrastructure. And we should be using that as like a weather predictor of what's going on. So in the state of Georgia, if you've got any sort of allergies or if you've ever lived here in the spring, you see the great pollination season begin. And so there are actually things you can look up on your news that says, you know, now is not a great day to go outside if you have any respiratory infections, if you um, are prone to asthma, et cetera. We should have that sort of infrastructure for wastewater with COVID-19. And it can also be used for other viruses so that we would say, all right, now we're in a position where if I look up Atlanta and all of a sudden I see predictors are very high that COVID cases are going up, I put my mask back on when I go out in public. We should get to that place. That's public health infrastructure. Following up for outbreaks, following up, if you've got a case of monkeypox, let's talk about where they are, who they've been um, in conversation with and been in locations with, and making sure that we're putting the most prevention in place so that we don't see spread of infection. That's public health infrastructure. Insurance is about you individually. So very, very different. But thank you for making sure we don't we don't um, confuse the two. <laughs> it uh, does seem like there's a uh, uh, I mean, part of part of what's happened when we talk about what should happen in the future. I keep thinking about um, lack of direction um, uh, that. Uh, you know, if if all 50 states sort of go off in their own directions on on public health, uh, then you can have vastly different outcomes in, in, in different states. And yet, if you try to coordinate everything from one central location, then you don't have uh, things that are more flexible. I mean, what's happening in upstate New York may not be what's happening in uh, Arizona. Uh, and so uh, what what's the right mix there of, of, of guidance versus mandate? I don't think we figured it out. Um, you know, we um, don't do well with mandates. As a country, we do not like them. Um, but we've also not taken the personal responsibility to take guidance seriously. 
And so, um, you know, when we think about pandemics and we think about modeling um, what might happen or what might not happen if we do this or don't do that, what we've never modeled before, what we've never needed to put in there is misinformation. And that has been a remarkable predictor of superiorly bad outcomes in this pandemic. And I don't know how you model that, but apparently we need to. And um, we have got to figure out a way to get control of the, of the misinformation that has literally killed people in our country. And, and I just find that astonishing that we have to say that. It, it, I, I will it really say is. that I agree with that. As a former public health person, I agree with that 100% because when we did our simulations, pandemic simulations, we never actually planned for that. And I think that's a huge lesson coming out of this pandemic. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say that's all the time we have for this week because we're going to have to leave it there on that ominous note. Uh, but Jody, I feel confident that we're probably going to have you back um, in a few months and and we will talk about uh, uh, how we can be a little bit more proactive in uh, in, in uh, getting out ahead of these pandemics, because I think that's a very important uh, thing that we need to turn our national attention to, uh, both as a public health thing as an economic and budgetary uh, matter. That's all we have time for this week. Uh, this is your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Jody Guest has been our guest this week. Tori Gorman, Phil uh, Phil <laughs> Smith, and Av Harris and I have been uh, joining in the questioning about COVID-19. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 